Amen, amen. Encouraging words from Pastor Robbie Simons uh, from Harvest Bible Chapel, Oakville. Let's get our hands on our uh, Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that right now. They're coming up and down the aisle with copies of God's Word. And if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, this is our, our gift uh, to you. Our aim today is to take our theme verse, Ephesians 3 and, 20, uh, and 21, and place it in its proper context, in the context within this series, and also within the context of the book of Ephesians, and within the context of the revelation of Scripture that we have in our hands, going all the way from Genesis uh, chapter 1 to Revelation chapter uh, 22. We've been in a series called Trusting God for More. We've been talking about trusting God for more faith, and more love, more humility, more generosity, uh, more growth. And then today it's trusting God for more glory. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21 reads as follows. For this, is, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name. And we come in the power of your Holy Spirit who has been sent, Lord, to, to indwell us and to empower us. It is your Spirit, Lord, who inspired the Apostle Paul to write these things in a letter to the church at Ephesus. Lord, and now we pray that your Spirit would illuminate your word and empower us to be able to believe it and then to, to live it out in our everyday lives. Lord, we pray that you would make your presence known here in this place for your glory and for our good. Lord, we want to hear your voice, Lord. We want to hear your words speak to us. And so we invite that you would do that in Jesus' name. If you agree, say amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3 verses of 14 to 21. Our aim here is to understand this passage in its proper context. So let's go to the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 1, we're introduced to the author. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. Ephesus was a real city. And the Apostle Paul was writing a real letter to a real group of people. But it wasn't just Paul that was writing it. As I just prayed, it was the Spirit who was inspiring him, carrying him along. So that these words not only hold meaning for that particular church at that particular time, but that the, these words have powerfully spoken throughout generations of uh, churches and are speaking to us uh, right now. This is the first thing Paul wanted to communicate to them. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as 
sons through, his, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul wanted them to know first and foremost that they were chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined even to become adopted, adopted as sons and daughters. Now he wasn't telling them this so that they could win theological arguments. He wasn't giving them a handy Calvinist proof text here. No, he was, he was telling them this because he wanted them to be encouraged by this reality. That before the foundation of the world, God knew us and chose us, predestined us. He wanted us as his sons and his daughters. So Paul encouraged them with the truth of God's saving and electing work. But he doesn't negate the, the personal decision that they made themselves. Look at verse 13. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, they made a decision to, God decided to choose them, and they made a decision. You're thinking, well, whose decision is it? How does it fit together? Well, it's a mystery of how it all fits together in the infinite and glorious plan of God. But they made a decision to believe in him. And then it says at the end of verse 13, and we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he's encouraging them that, that God the Father chose them in advance. And that as the gospel of his Son was proclaimed to them, and as they believed, then they were sealed with his Spirit. The whole Trinity is explained as being at work in the lives of the believers in Ephesians chapter 1. Then in verse 16 he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then so Paul's saying that he's praying for them. And our passage today in chapter 3 is another prayer that Paul gives in the middle of this letter. Then look with me at, at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul explains uh, really the gospel and how it went to work in their lives. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He began by saying, hey, you guys are sons and daughters of God. But he, he reminds them in chapter 2, you weren't always that way. You used to be sons and daughters of disobedience. You weren't following God. You were following the ways of the world and the lusts of your flesh and, 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 and Satan himself. But then in one of the most powerful and profound passages, in, in, beginning in verse 4, it says, But God. This is who we once were, but this is who God is. God stepped in and changed things. We didn't earn our way back to God. No, God is the one who stepped in. It said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So Paul clarifies how the gospel works, that it, it came as a result of God's great love towards us, God's mercy towards us, and that he saved us not because we earned salvation. No, it happened because of grace. We were given something that we didn't deserve. Further explaining God's grace in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So Paul says, listen, you're not saved by works, but he doesn't, he doesn't get rid of works altogether. He says, no, we are God's workmanship. He's working on us, and part of his working on us is so that we would produce good works. Not, not so that we will be saved, but because we already have been saved. Not saved by works, but saved for works that God does in us and through us. And then he goes on in chapter uh, 2 to talk about the work of transformation that he had done in this particular community in the city of Ephesus. Look at verse 14. It says, For he himself, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Oh, we live in a world today where people want to try to build walls to keep other people out. And, 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 and that was no different in Paul's day as it, is, as it is today. And there was this massive wall between those who were the people of God, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and every other nation who were referred to as Gentiles. That means the nations. And in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ died not just for the chosen people of Israel, but for each and every uh, tribe, tongue, and nation all around this world, that in Christ, that dividing wall of hostility, the groups that used to be at odds with one another are now at peace with one another. Christ tore down that wall. And the power of the gospel tears down the walls that would normally exist between people along racial lines or ethnic lines or social or political lines. Jesus is the one who was able to break down those walls. But not only did he break something down, he also chose to build something up. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22. It says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the dividing wall has been broken down. But now that that wall has been destroyed, God is building a new thing, a dwelling place for God, that the people of God are the dwelling place of God. Loved ones, God does not dwell at 7755 10th line. We, we, we were a dwelling place of God long before we moved into this location. And, and if for whatever reason we're unable to meet in this location, we will still be the dwelling place of God. That not, not with bricks and mortar built by men and cranes and bulldozers, but that's built by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is outlining all of these things, all that God had done. Then you come to chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this reason, for this reason, in light of everything I've just said about God predestining you and choosing you and adopting you and that you believe in the gospel and being sealed with the Holy Spirit and that even though you were dead in your sins, being made alive and that you're saved by grace and even though the dividing wall has, has been broken down and now you're being built up, he says, for this reason. Then he says, for this reason I, and he, he goes on a little bit of a tangent in verses 1 to 13 talking about himself and his own ministry and how God called him. And then if you go to chapter 3, verse 14, it's the exact same phrase, for this reason. Now he's back on track. He started by, he went on a little bit of a rabbit trail there. For this reason, I, well, speaking of me, let me tell you a little bit about myself and how God worked in my life. But then he says, for this reason, he says, enough about me. Now I want to talk about God. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's going to pray again. He's praying for the people of Ephesus. 
He's going to, to pray one of the most powerful and beautiful and profound prayers in all of Scripture. He's going to pray a prayer that has really been the, 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 the basis for uh, this uh, church plant and every major initiative that we've undertaken. This has always been the verse that we have, uh, that we have a turn to. This, this incredible prayer that Paul uh, prays. Notice how he bows his knees before the Father. God's described as the Father. Verse 15, it says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There's a footnote in my Bible that says it could be the whole, the whole family. Uh, the King James, the NIV translates it, not, not, not uh, every family, but the whole family of God, that we all belong to one another in heaven and on earth. It's not talking about angelic families. They don't marry and they aren't married. And, and so he's talking about the, the families that have gone before us that are now in the presence of God. They're part of the family of God that we are a part of now. God is the father of all. And then he, this is what he asks, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory. Let's just stop right there for a second. The title for today's message is Trusting God for More Glory. You get to the very end of the passage, it says, glory be to God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So the ultimate goal of this passage, what Paul is going to pray for, is the glory of God. But his prayer actually begins with the glory of God. He wants God to be glorified in the church, and so he begins by praying that God, according to the riches of his glory... The, the, the glory of God, the, the, the Greek word there is doxa, where we get our idea of doxology or, or praise. It means brightness. It means shining. It's the brilliance of God. In, in Hebrew, the, the, the word is kabod. It means weight or heaviness. This is, this is the glory of God. It's, it's who God is. His his heaviness, his brightness, the manifest presence of God. He's praying that according to the riches of his glory, that God would do something. And here's what he asked, that, that he may grant you, I'm in verse 16, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I jot this down. If, if we are going to see God get glory in our church, if God, from the abundance of his glory, his glorious riches, if he were going to shower that on us, three things would happen in our church. Here's the first one. If God were to shower his glory, it would definitely expand our understanding of God's love. It would expand our understanding of God's love. If we truly got the heaviness of God, the brilliance of God, the brightness of God, if his manifest presence... Were to, were to pour out on us, it would come and what it would do, would ex, it would expand our understanding of God's love. In verse 17, he prays, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now he's not praying that the, the church at Ephesus, that each individual would become a Christian and that Jesus would come into their heart. 
Uh, he, already, he already covered that. He said they had been predestined for that to happen long before the foundation of the world, that they had personally made that decision, that they've gone from being spiritually dead to now spiritually alive. So he's not, he's not talking about Christ coming into a person's life by the Spirit. The, the, the key is that word dwell. Uh, your dwelling place is your home. It's the place where you feel at home, where you feel comfortable. What he's praying here is that Christ would feel at home in our hearts. You see, you can be present somewhere but not feel at home there. I mean, our, our whole aim of our welcome ministry and our team and events like Lunch with the Leaders that are happening after this service is that we just don't want people to, to attend Harvest. We want them to belong. We want them to feel at home. And, and that is our aim. So if you don't feel at home here right now, we want to change that as quickly as possible. And it's very possible to, to be present somewhere and not feel at home. A couple of years ago, my friend and I, I went to a basketball game together. Now, he's a huge fan of the University of Michigan Wolverines. And I'm a, I'm a diehard fan of the Michigan State Spartans. Now, they're often confused with one another, but they're huge rivals uh, in NCAA football and in uh, basketball. Now, the University of, of Michigan, they, uh, that, that university is located in, in Ann Arbor, and, uh, and they wear uh, maize and blue, or you just Spartans. They wear green and white. And so we were going to this basketball game in Ann Arbor, and I proudly wore my green and white Michigan State jersey zipped up under my jacket. Because I was surrounded by maize and blue, yellow and blue. Sweaters and hats and scarves. And, and I, was, I did not feel at home there as a Spartans fan, because I wasn't cheering for the Wolverines. I was there, but I didn't feel at home. And what Paul is getting at here is that the Spirit would do such a work in our life, according to the abundance, the riches of God's glory, that God would do such a work of transformation in our hearts that Christ would feel completely at home. That the thoughts that we entertain... The choices that we make, the words that come out of our mouths, the company that we keep, the things we bring before our eyes, Christ would feel, I belong here. That's what Paul is getting at, that we would live lives from the inside out that would make Christ dwell, that he would feel at home in our hearts. And notice what it says in verse, in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you've been tracking with us throughout this series, you'll remember that the first message was, was trusting God for more faith. And in order for Christ to dwell in our hearts, it has to happen by faith. We need to be living lives of faith. We talked about how we bring our mustard seed and God has the power to bring, to move mountains. It's not up to, it's not up to the amount of faith that we have, but where we are placing our faith. Trusting God uh, for more of his glory will expand our understanding of God's love for us. Verse 17 goes on to say that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. He, he, he wants our, our lives to be rooted and grounded. Rooted is an agricultural metaphor. Grounded is an architectural metaphor. Our lives, they're, they're both metaphors of growth. You, the, the roots go into the soil. They are rooted so that that creates an environment for growth. Uh, a foundation 
is, is where, where a building is founded so that you can build on that building. Paul is praying for growth. I was so thankful for Pastor Marvin's message last week about trusting God for more growth. The love of God is the soil that allows us to grow. The love of God is the foundation where we can trust Him as we build and grow as individuals and as a church. And you can't stop kingdom growth because you can't stop the king. Amen. Amen. And so that's, Paul is praying that, that the church would, would grow, that they'd be rooted and grounded. Grow in what? Love is the context in which we grow. It's the soil where growth happens. It's the foundation where, where growth is built upon. But what are we growing in? Rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. You see, Paul's being quite circular here in, in what he's saying. He began by talking about uh, the riches of God's glory and he's going to end when we get to the end of this, par- this passage about the glory of God. Now he says you've got to be rooted and grounded in love so that you can grow in your understanding of love. It's all, about, it's all about glory. It's all about love. The, the, the place where we start is also the place where we end up. What, as Christians, we have already been given so much as a glorious inheritance. And really what Paul is praying about is that we would understand what has already been given to us in God's glory and in God's love. That we would comprehend it. Verse 18 uses the word comprehend. Verse 19, the, twice the word know or knowledge. The Greek word there is gnosko. It's not just an intellectual or cognitive reasoning. It's experiential. That's what's being uh, described here. Have you personally experienced the love of God? Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about the love of God. All of us are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. God has extended his his hand towards us in love and relationship. And we have shaken our fist at him and turned away from him. And God, rather than punishing us and and pouring out his wrath and his righteous judgment on us for our sins sent his son to suffer and die and demonstrated his love most clearly for us when his his son, Jesus Christ, suffered for us on the cross. And that when he was dying on the cross, he was being punished for our sins. God's judgment and righteous wrath was being poured out on his son so that we could receive the gift of eternal life. Christ was buried and then rose again so that we could have the hope of a life after this life. This, and you can personally decide to make that decision to follow Jesus Christ. It doesn't just need to be cognitive. It doesn't just need to be intellectual. It can be experiential for you today if you would open your heart to receiving what God has given to you today. I remember different times in my life where I became absolutely overwhelmed by the knowledge that God loves me. That's what Paul is praying for. That we would have that kind of a moment where we would be overwhelmed by who God is and how much he has chosen to love us even though we are so unlovely and so unworthy of his love. He says that this is the kind of love, in verse 19, that surpasses knowledge. 
He says height and breadth and width and, and depth, but he says, listen, good luck with that because you're never going to find the, the farthest border, the greatest extent of God's incredible love for us. Notice how we also said back in verse 18 that this is something that's supposed to happen together with all the saints. The lesson of the love of God is not something that we can learn in isolation. It's not a course you can take by correspondence. You need fellow classmates in order to learn these lessons. God's going to do something in your life that he'll never do in mine. And when you share it with me, I'm going to learn and grow from that. And then when you're able to express God's love to another brother or sister, it helps us understand to a greater extent God's love for us. It's together with all of the saints. So God, according to his glorious riches, his riches of glory, is going to do a work in our inner being by the power of his spirit so that we can be rooted and grounded in love and then understand the height and depth and width and breadth and to know the love that surpasses knowledge and what is the ultimate result. Look at the, look at the end of verse 19. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's the end game for Paul. Filled with the fullness of God. That God in the riches of his glory would do all of this work in us so that we would know the love of God. And when we begin to get a grasp of God's incredible love for us in Christ, that's when we experience the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean for us to have the fullness of God? Is it actually... Is it actually reasonable or possible for an infinite God to dwell inside of us, a, a finite being? That's not what's being described. Only Christ truly had the, the full, only in him was the fullness of deity pleased to dwell. But what does it mean for us to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, what the Apostle Paul is talking about is maturity, becoming full grown. Look ahead to Ephesians 4, verse 11. He's talking about the church and different roles and responsibilities within the church. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. My Bible has a, a footnote there. It, it's a full-grown man or woman. It, it's a full-grown person. Full. That it goes on to say, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's the idea of becoming a mature believer. Look over at, at Ephesians 5 verse 18. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul is, Paul is wanting them to be filled with the Spirit, filled with the fullness of God. He contrasts it with alcohol. When someone is filled with alcohol to their shame, it's a, they say things they normally wouldn't say. And they're emboldened to do things they normally wouldn't do. In the same way, but in a very different way, when you're filled with the Spirit, you find yourself saying things you normally wouldn't say. And you find yourself emboldened things that you normally wouldn't do. Now, one is a result in disaster. The other is a result in glory to God and the good of others. And that's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. It's becoming more mature. Having God work in your life and through your life. 
So for Paul, the definition of spiritual maturity, the key to spiritual maturity is to have an understanding of the love of God for you. You see, we so often get it all backwards. We think, okay, well, spiritual maturity means that, you know, I have a, I have a consistent quiet time and do personal devotions. Well, listen, quiet time, personal devotions are absolutely vitally important. But that's not the key to spiritual maturity. Unless that spiritual maturity, sorry, unless those personal devotions are causing you to go deeper in your understanding of God's love. Not thinking that you need to earn God's love by doing your devotions. Some of us think that in order to to become spiritually mature, you need to really understand theology and all of the big words. Now I'm not not being anti-academic here by any means. And it is important that we understand theology, but unless that theology is actually fostering a fire for God and an understanding of the love of God, then it's all pointless. For Paul, spiritual maturity is knowing that God loves you. The more you know that God loves you, the more mature you will become. Notice how it's not even, it's not even a prayer that we would love God more. It's simply a prayer that we would know how much God loves us. For Paul, the most mature Christian is the one who says, Jesus loves me, this I know. That's where spiritual maturity comes from. And and having that childlike faith, that wonder that the creator of the universe would set his affection on me. If God were going to take the riches of his glory and pour it out on our church, it would result in all of us having an expanded understanding of God's love for us. It would also cause us to enlarge our vision of God's power. It would cause us to enlarge our vision of God's power. In verse 20 it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. If God were to shower us with his glory, if we were to truly get a glimpse of his brilliance, his doxa, if we were to truly understand his heaviness, his weight, the significance of all that he is, it would cause us to enlarge our vision of his power. Those three English words, far more abundantly, translate one Greek word, huperek perisu. Parisu is the Greek word for abundance, for extraordinary, for, a, for beyond any, what, what anyone could imagine. That's what parisu means. But then he adds hooper and ek onto it. Hooper means above. It's where we get our, our word for hyper. You know, if someone's hyper, they're over and above. And then also the word ek. It's where we get our word for exit, which means beyond these walls. How to get to the other side of this wall. So Paul takes the word for abundance and he says, blow the top off. It's over in abundance of over in abundance. And then he says, it's beyond the borders of being borderless. It's huperek parisu. It's far more abundant. He's trying to describe the indescribable. To to visualize the invisible. To calculate the incalculable. To to measure the, the immeasurable. To explain the unexplainable. The power of God. God has a love for us 
that this passage tells us far exceeds our ability to comprehend it. And he has a power at work within us that far exceeds our capacity to even ask or imagine. It says far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And then he says something incredible. According to the power at work within us. It's not something that God wants to do out there. It's something that God wants to do in here. Now imagine if you are a a young disciple of Jesus Christ living in the city of Ephesus and this letter has come from Paul and everyone is reading it and you know all about Paul. You've heard about him. Maybe some of your friends have even met him and saw him preach and teach and saw the miracles and the different things that he was doing. And you're listening to this letter and then, and then it's, it says, according to the power at work within us. And you're thinking, wait a second, that same power that God is using in the Apostle Paul is also at work in me? And loved ones, it's an incredible thing that Paul would say that it's at work within us. It wasn't just at work in him as an apostle. It was at work in every believer. And it was true for the early church in Ephesus and is true for us today. It's the power at work within us. That if we are yielding to the Spirit, if we are walking in obedience, that there is this extraordinary, far more abundantly power that is flowing through our lives, more than we could ever ask or imagine. He had already described how the power had been at work in them. Everything he said in chapter 1 and chapter 3 about being predestined and called and and then believing and sealed with the Spirit and the dividing wall of hostility being broken down and building up a new dwelling place of God. He said, God's already done far more abundantly in your lives. But Ephesians chapter 3 is sort of like a hinge. It begins with theology and who God is. But then chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, it's very practical. It says, in light of what God has done, this then is how we're supposed to live. If this power is flowing through us, then that's going to transform the way that we live. Let's, let me just walk you through the rest of the book really quick. Chapter 4 and verse Three, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's the power of God working through us that helps preserve church unity even when things get uh, disrupted. I already read for you chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. It's the power of God that produces maturity in us as believers. Look down at chapter 4, verse 22. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the power of God that gives us the ability to put off the old and to put on the new. It's that far more abundant power at work in our lives. It gives us power to speak the truth and to live lives of openness and honesty. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. God's power at work within us gives us the ability to not be controlled by our anger, but to allow in the power of the Holy Spirit to respond in a godly way when our circumstances and surroundings are frustrating us. It fosters, the power of God fosters generosity in us. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone 
in need. It's the power of God that transforms people from being selfish, even as selfish as a thief who would steal things from other people, to have now a heart of generosity. It's the power of God that gives us generosity. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Maybe you've been wounded or hurt by another brother or sister in Christ. It's the power of God where it's not up to you. It's not your power. We can't do it in ourselves. It's the power of God that gives us the ability to forgive. That it says, as, as God in Christ forgave you. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us. It's God's power working in us to love others. And then as we walk in love, we put to death the lusts of the flesh. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity over covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The power of God working through us helps us to live lives of sexual purity in a sexually obsessed world that we are living in today. And then... 5 verse 18, which we already read about being filled with the Spirit. And time won't allow us. But if you continue to even look at the subject headings, it's the power of God that helps us to have healthy, strong marriages. It's the power of God that helps parents and children in their relationships. It's the power of God at work in the employer-employee relationship. In their context, slaves and slave owners. It's the power of God at the end of chapter 6 that enables us to fight spiritual warfare. This is the abundant power that is available to us. This is why we can say that we are trusting God for more. He's saved us. He's adopted us. He's broken down the wall of hostility. He's done all of this in the past. The Apostle Paul calls the church at Ephesus to, to, all, to, see, to see God do all of these things, to trust Him for more. And we as the church in Brampton can be trusting Him for more and beyond all of this. And we can look back, loved ones, think about it. Just thinking about that, that encouraging video from Pastor Robbie there in Harvest Oakville. A new church in the GTA being planted, you know, 14 or 15 uh, years ago. And seeing God work through that. And then a church here uh, uh, being started here in the, the Churchill uh, Meadows uh, area. And, and, and all of the hopes and dreams that were involved for, for this area among that group of people. And then a church being planted from Oakville leapfrogging over Mississauga into uh, Brampton. And listen, all three churches, all three churches have great stories. Things worth celebrating. But all three churches also have, have moments in their history that are very sobering as well. There have been a lot of triumphs, but there have been a lot of tragedies. There, have, there has been a lot of joy, but there's also been a lot of sorrow. And who would have thought that our God, in his abundant power, would have woven the stories together of Harvest Oakville and Harvest Brampton and Churchill Meadows Christian Community Church or, or DC3 and, and having those three stories put together. Listen, if you were at Harvest Oakville, chances are you never imagined being here right now. If you were from Harvest Brampton, you, you know for sure you weren't picturing being here right now. And if you're, from, if you're from DC3, same thing. I mean, this is not what any of us have expected. The power of God is the only explanation for why any of us are here right now. It is God's incredible power at work within us. And we want to trust him to do more. To enlarge our vision of God's power. And then lastly, to express 
our praise of God's glory. If God were to shower the riches of his glory on us, we would enlarge our understanding of of his love. We would would enlarge our vision of, of his power and then we would express our praise of his glory. It begins with his glory. It ends with his glory. God, be the glory. Verse 21 says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think about this for a minute. God has chosen the church to be the place where he wants to manifest his glory, where he wants his heaviness, his weight to be known, where he wants his shining brilliance to be seen. God hasn't chosen the myriads of stars in the galaxy and the universe. God hasn't chosen the depths of the ocean. God hasn't chosen a beautiful beachfront sunrise or sunset. No, he's chosen you and me, imperfect people, trusting in God's promises. This is the place where God has chosen to manifest his glory. When God's word is preached, he is glorified. When God's people praise his name, he is glorified. When people go out and share their faith, God is glorified. When people gather together to pray, God is glorified. When small group members go and visit one another in the hospital, God is glorified. When nursery workers cuddle babies and put young moms at ease, God is glorified. When people pray earnestly together for a wayward child, God is glorified. When people sweep up after an event, God is glorified. When people talk in the cafe about how God is at work in their life, God is glorified. This is it. This is where God has chosen to bring glory to himself. It says it right here in black and white. This is the word of God. To God be glory in the church. This is what we are to give our lives to. This is what we are to be about, to be devoted to. Listen, it's not a perfect place. But God has chosen that even in the midst of imperfections, his glorious perfection is made manifest as his power is at work within us. Also make note of how quickly, as soon as he says glory in the church, he says, and in Christ Jesus. The church is only a place where God is glorified if the church, just like in this verse, is in close proximity to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And so we have no hope of bringing glory to God if we were to neglect the Son of God. And as we think back about this this series, trusting God for more faith, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Trusting, Trusting God for more love. We love because he first loved us. Trusting God for more humility. He's the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we're the ones who say with John the Baptist, he must increase and we must decrease. Trusting God for more growth. We're to grow up into him and trusting God for more glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And so this is who we are as the people of God. This is what we are trusting God for, more glory. We are just a, a simple, broken, but being rebuilt, blood-bought, promise-trusting, Bible-believing people of God who are believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, living for Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and loving Jesus. To Him be glory in the church and throughout all generations. You know, I love pulling up to this, uh, to this uh, church parking lot, and whether I'm coming across Winston Churchill or whether I'm on the highway or whether I'm coming up from 10th line, I love seeing the cross displayed for all 
to see. And uh, some of you got uh, facility tours as, as, as we've been uh, going through this series. And you, you've been in this room uh, back here where the worship team and the, and the preachers, the elders, we get together and we pray. And there is this massive, seemingly inconvenient pillar, cylinder, right in the middle of the room. And you can't arrange furniture around it. And it's just sort of there. And, for, you know... You would think, we need to get rid of this. What is the, what is the point of this thing? There, there, there's, we can't lean against it. It's, it's, it's kind of awkwardly placed in the room. But when you think carefully about where that pillar goes, that pillar is holding up the cross that is displayed for all to see. And when this building was put up for sale, loved ones, you need to know that the real estate agents, and they're just trying to do their job, but they got airbrushing and photoshopping and they removed the cross from all of the pictures of this building. Because the thinking was is that the time for this space to be used for the glory of God and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, that that had come to an end. Loved ones, it has not come to an end. And it is only just beginning. Amen. And so we are trusting God for more glory, which means that we are trusting God for more Jesus. That he would be proclaimed and loved and glorified in this place. Let's pray that that would happen. And as it says here, for generations and generations. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son and we cling to him and we worship him because he is our hope. And in him, Lord, we have the hope of the glory of God, which is Christ in us. And so, Lord, we, we, we know the significance of this day. We know what you are calling all of us to do. And, Father, we pray that you would do a good and glorious work in our midst by your Spirit. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your, your love for us that surpasses knowledge and all of its height and its depth and its width and its breadth, Lord. And that we would trust and believe that your power is at work within us and that nothing is impossible for you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move now, Lord, that you would move in the generations to come until your glorious return, Lord. We pray that we would be found faithful in this place and beyond these walls, Lord God, that you would bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.